Wouldn't be surprised if uh, we're having nightmares about locusts these days, huh? Or eating them, maybe? Hey, we're in a series on Joel, this minor prophet. It's all about a locust plague, about hardship. And we're learning that sometimes there can actually be an upside to down, a, a, a silver lining in the clouds, a benefit that God can bring through hard times. And so, with that said, I want to intro this second message in this series by telling you a little story that relates to this picture. So let's put up this photo. This is a, Jake and I, we posed for a reenactment of a moment that occurred this week. And it was not a pretty moment. So I'm kind of letting you into a little bit of the Griffin family drama. Uh, Jake was playing a game. Anybody know what that is? Minecraft, that's right. He loves Minecraft. Uh, And he was, when I say into it, I mean engulfed in this game, entering into this world to a point where he was not even attuned to the world outside. I know that because it was dinner time. And I said to Jake, hey, Jake, mom's got dinner ready. Let's uh, turn off the game and come to the table. Didn't hear a word I said, you know. He's a, oh. And and so I said it louder. I I said, hey, Jake, dinner's ready. Let's turn that off, buddy. Oh, you know, just completely oblivious to the presence of his father standing right next to him, let alone the instructions that I'm giving. I, you can see my hand over there. Can you tell what button I'm reaching for? That would be the power button. Beep. And in one little press, I wiped out Minecraft world. And Jake went ballistic. My son was, no, I didn't get to save what I was doing. And he started crying. And he looked to me and he said, Dad, that was the meanest thing you could possibly have done. And he meant it. He meant it. He was absolutely disgusted with my cruelty. And it troubled me. It bothered me. I'm looking in my kid's eyes and I'm going, he has interpreted what I just did as mean, nothing but mean-hearted desire to cause him misery. Now, I hope you see that that was not my heart in the matter. It was actually love. I, in fact, I had contemplated for a moment, let's just let Jake play his game, and we'll, as a family, we'll enjoy a peaceful dinner. And I'm like, no. I love my son. I want him to be a part of. I want to enjoy his company. I want him to enjoy our company. And so this decision to do what I did, I'm telling you, please believe me, it was out of love for my boy. Now, as you see, he didn't see it that way. Well, here, here's the issue. Sometimes God zaps our world. Sometimes God wipes out our financial world, our relational world, our business world, our health world. Sometimes hardship comes his, our way by his doing. And in those moments, it is so natural for people to say, oh, What are you doing, God? How can you possibly let this happen? Lord, I thought you loved me. And we interpret the arrival of suffering or hardship into our lives as absolute divine cruelty and conclude or are tempted to conclude God is mean. 
Could it be that if we had eyes to see the truth behind what he's doing, we would discover there's actually love in it? Folks, that's what we're going to discover as we dive into the Word of God. This is not, you know, like, oh, I see suffering. Oh, Lord, you must really love me. That's not the uh, initial conclusion we come to. But as we study the Word of God, I pray he helps you to recognize When suffering comes our way, we're tempted to conclude, wow, Lord, you're mean. Just the opposite. The truth is, it's evidence of his love. You ready? So we're turning back to Joel. Last week we were in Joel 1. Uh, This passage is out of Joel 2. There's only three chapters in Joel. The passage, or the book of Joel, is a tough one to find, so I'm going to remind you that it's on page 910, one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Maybe you're new to the Bible and finding your way around the Bible. Well, the Old Testament's kind of big. New Testament, relatively short. At the end of the Old Testament, you'll find Joel. Joel 2.10. Before I read, let let me tell you that the first nine verses of Joel 2 are all a vivid description of this locust plague. It describes the locust plague like a vicious army sweeping across the land, reaping destruction in its path. And and here you'll see the viciousness of it still as I start in verse 10. Before them, that is the locust swarm, before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, Quite literally, locust swarms can be so dense that they block out the sun, stars. The the sun, the moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? I want to just say up front, these are disturbing verses. Uh, We were tempted to say, oh, locust swarm, that's just too bad. Bad things happen. God has nothing to do with it. Nope, not that way. What we find here, the Lord thunders at the head of his army like a military commander leading an army into battle. So the Lord is at the head of this locust swarm that is causing such havoc and pain for his, God's people. It says, his army, his forces are beyond number. Mighty is the army that obeys his commands. It was the command of God that said, Locust army, attack the people of Israel. This is troubling. Folks, one of the things we discover so clearly from this text is at least sometimes hardship is sent by God. Now, not always, but sometimes. In fact, let me teach just for a moment and provide three explanations for the cause of suffering. This helps us see the role that God might be playing in our suffering. The first of the causes I'm going to call the fallen world. The Bible is so clear on this matter. We live on a broken planet. If you thought planet Earth was paradise, got bad news for you. It's busted. Damaged goods 
originally created to be perfect. But there was an event, a cosmic rebellion, where humanity told God to bug out. Go back to the early chapters of Genesis where God blessed Adam and Eve with free will and said, hey, I'm not going to tell you, you have to follow me. Your choice. Adam and Eve, our forefathers, rebelled against God's authority, ate the fruit, and said, Lord, with that act, we tell you, get out. And when you tell God to get out, it brings ramifications. God's holding the world together, and when he backs off even a bit, things will not be the same. The early chapters of Genesis record that the earth was cursed as a result, or fallen, and that brokenness entered, relational brokenness, and physical brokenness, and natural brokenness, disease, birth defect, natural disasters. There are problems all over simply because we live on a broken world, a fallen world. And sometimes when you say, why did this cancer come my way? Sometimes the explanation is simply, we live in a broken world. Our bodies are prone to disease. That's what's ha- what happens here. It's the result of our rebellion as a people. Number two, natural consequence. This is where God says, you know, I'm telling you to do this because it really isn't a good idea to not do this. And when we choose to ignore God's wisdom, we reap the consequence of our bad decision making. I I had a guy uh, recently in our church just tell me, Jeff, my family is falling apart. And I know why. Me. Me. And he started telling me some of the decisions that he had made. And he realized, I'm messing up my family. Folks, you know, have debts up to their earlobes. And the truth is, they have not stewarded finances wisely. So often, we make bad decisions and reap the natural consequence of some hardship is our doing, in other words. One more, and that is divine discipline. That's what we see going on in Joel here. This is where God actually sees stubborn rebellion of his people, a refusal to return to him, and he says, I'm going to have to provide discipline and send hardship with a hope of turning your rebellion. Now, here's the challenge. When you look at hardship in your life, you can try to figure out which of these three is it. Sometimes it's immediately clear. Other times you're like, I don't know, is this just a natural part of the fallen world or am I being disciplined by God for, you know, drifting from him? Help me, Lord. You got to pray, but help me to see. And sometimes we gain clarity, sometimes we don't. But know this, ultimately all three of these result from our sin, sinful rebellion on humanity, whether it be, you know, Adam and Eve representing all of us, turning in rebellion and the curse of the world as a result, whether it be the natural result of specific sins that we do, whether it be God's choosing to discipline us because of our sin. When you see suffering, don't ever say, ultimately, you know, God creates suffering. No, all suffering is created by our spiritual rebellion. Now, you say, but God could take it away And God could, in grace, you know God's gracious, right? He's so tender and loving and kind. Couldn't he just say, hey, you know what? You deserve this, but I'm not going to let you suffer any of it. I'm going to wipe away the curse. 
I'm going to take away all problems. I'm going to intervene miraculously and solve every situation. God could remove suffering. He chooses not to. Why? It's a really good question. Why? And what's really fun is that as we progress into the next verses, we see why. So I continue now with verse 12. Just finished 11, and it was really ugly, remember? God's just going to come and squash everybody. Who can withstand the day of the Lord? Well, look at how it turns. Verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. God speaking. In fact, I want to just clarify. This first part is a direct quote of God, declares the Lord. Even now, return to me, God says. There's a little break here because this next part is actually Joel the prophet, commenting on what God says or or providing emphasis on what God says. Joel says, rend your heart, people, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity if you will only return. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, uh, there's, all, there's this strange tension between the, the harshness of those first two verses that I read and the soft love of these second two verses that I read. And yet they are right there together. They're part of one story. And I want to tell you that simply put, what's behind God's providing of suffering or permitting of suffering is simply this. He longs for people to return to him. That's what it's all about. Return to me, God says, pleads, begs. Folks, let me put it this way. God knows that by permitting suffering to exist on planet Earth, that increases the frequency of people returning to him and seeking reconciliation through the cross of Christ and becoming a Christian, as well as Christians seeking closer relationship with them. Suffering has that effect. Have you noticed that? Have you ever asked people, hey, tell me your spiritual story. You know, how did you become a Christian? Or how did you grow closer to the Lord? I am shocked how often suffering, hardship, difficulty is a part of that story. Just this week, Jen and I were out having lunch with a a couple, some new friends. uh, And I, I asked the guy, I said, hey, tell me how God won your heart. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's easy. And he holds up his hand. Actually, he held up his hand like this because he's missing part of one finger. And I'm like, ah, well, what happened there? And he said, well, I, was, I owned my own landscaping business, and my business was so important to me, I was throwing all of my heart into that business. And he said, one day, one of my guys, their lawnmower wasn't working. I thought it was jammed. I reached under <laughs> Last part of my finger. He said, when I was in the hospital, staring at what I had done and realizing my new situation, crying out to God, he said, in the hospital, dealing with this, God got a hold of my whole life. And I hear that again and again and again. The Lord says, what can I say? Suffering works really, really well to wake people up and get them to return to me. 
And I'll say it this way. God cares more about being with you relationally than he does in the comfort and ease of your life. God says there's something way more important with you saying, boy, is life easy. And that is you being with me. Return to me. God says that's why I do what I do. And so, folks, when we see the Lord allowing suffering to exist in the world in all three of those forms... Uh, we should know this. It's strategic. It's purposeful. And his goal is that suffering would drive people into his arms. Now, I want to acknowledge that sometimes people are driven away. Sometimes people misinterpret suffering and say, all right, any God who can let that happen is no God I want to follow. And they shake their fist, concluding God is mean. But those who understand the heart of God in the matter will run to him, turn to him. Uh, in fact, I've sometimes said, Lord, why didn't you make the earth just easy? Why, why didn't you in your grace wipe away the curse and all difficulties and just make it smooth sailing? God said, because nobody would come to me. Suffering is like an alarm that says, whoa, hello, there's a problem. You need me. You know, my wife and I were driving in my pickup truck this week, and uh, I, like a good law-abiding citizen, buckled up. Jen didn't. And so my car, my, my truck started yelling at her. Beep, beep, beep. And she's like, oh, that is so annoying. And she just sits there, and it just keeps going. And I'm like, I'm not going to say anything, because the car's saying it all, you know, eventually. And she finally goes, fine, you know, and she's like, oh, that noise, you know. And she was upset as if, you know, that the, the maker of the automobile was just awful and was out to get her and make her miserable, you know. Uh, why, you know, it could be argued, why don't they make it a beautiful sound, a, a song maybe? Buckle your seatbelt. Wouldn't that be a better route to go? Well, the reason is we'd never do it. If it were pleasant, we would remain oblivious to the fact that we are in jeopardy, we are in harm's way, we are in danger. We wouldn't even know that we weren't buckled. But that piercing sound, the hardship of it, is a wake-up call. Hey, something's wrong. You may want to take a look. And in the same way, God says, Suffering causes otherwise preoccupied people to look up and say, what's going on? Why is this happening? God, where are you in this? God, I need you. And God says, I get the attention I desperately am longing for. And so it's, it's strategic love. I, think about it. On planet Earth, on the short amount of days we live on this planet, God allows suffering. In heaven, no more suffering. In heaven, wipes away every tear, takes away the curse, fixes everything. But here on Earth... This is the place where there's the window of opportunity for people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And the Lord says, I love you, and I don't want you to suffer, but if by allowing suffering I can increase the people who take advantage of that opportunity to reconcile with me, then the loving thing to do is to allow suffering to remain. God says, it, on planet Earth, it would not be loving to take away the suffering because everybody would stream through their days, their life, thinking everything's hunky-dory. Nobody would return to me. God says, now in heaven, it's a different story. In heaven, the window of opportunity to reconcile with the Lord is over. 
And so that's not an issue. Now, God says, there is when I will take away all the suffering. But in this earth place, it's best I allow you to reap the consequences of your rebellion, God says. So, uh, I hope you see the love. In fact, I want to just point to this phrase one more time. Return to me with all your heart. Do you, do you hear pleading? I hope you hear pleading in these words. Uh, people, when God sent that swarm on the people of Israel, the message that came with the hardship is, please come back to me. I'm trying to get your attention. God, like a scorned lover, is begging the people Come back to me, and not just physically. Come back to me with all your heart. God says, I want your heart. God's saying that to you this morning. Do you realize that? God's saying, return to me. God says, I want your heart so bad. So many of the minor prophets have this theme. It's, it's like a scorned lover, like one lamenting that their lover has turned to other idols. God says, you... You love your hobby and your job and your family and your physical health and your recreation. You love that stuff so much. God says, I want you to love me. Return to me with all your heart, please. God says, I yearn for you. And believe it or not, suffering is a proof, a demonstration of how much God longs for us to return to him. If you have the eyes to see, that's what it's all about. Uh, Joel sees it. Joel makes that connection. Remember when he's commenting here, he's saying, return to the Lord, your God, for, look at this, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This combination of descriptions of God is called by theologians the divine attribute formula. Have you seen the divine attribute formula before? Maybe you recognize those words, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's actually recurring throughout the Old Testament. It's the most famous, consistent description of the nature of God. In fact, when Abraham pleaded with God at Mount Sinai, show me your glory, God. What are you like? I want to see it. You know what God did? God sung these very words. It was the first time that the divine attribute formula was expressed. And I I see irony. You know, it's unexpected. We had these previous verses about God sending the swarm and being at the command of his army and who can withstand the day of the Lord. And Joel's saying, oh, isn't God good? And you're like, really, Joel? And he's like, oh, if you have eyes to see, you'll agree with me. He is so loving and so gracious, so compassionate, that that love is actually behind his permission of suffering because more than anything else, he wants to be near you, relationally connected to you. He wants to adore you and for you to adore him. And he'll do whatever it takes to get there. Interesting. Well, folks, uh, let's talk about this. Uh, I want to end our time together with very specific instructions about how to react 
to suffering when you're aware that there's love behind it, all right? When, when you, you have the option of having hardship in your life, shaking your fist at God and running away from him, that'd be a bad idea. That'd be based on misunderstanding. Rather, here's how you can respond to suffering in a very constructive way. You can see what God's trying to do. And here's where we're, uh, I'm going to put up one part of a verse here. Verse 13, and I want to draw out of this three points, okay? God uses suffering. Here we go. God uses suffering to open your eyes. The first thing that happens here is that the people, because of hardship, realize a return is necessary. When it says return to the Lord, what is the implication? You've drifted from the Lord, right? If it's necessary to return then it must mean you've gone far from him. And one of the things that happens with suffering is self-awareness. Sometimes our eyes are closed. We're blind to how far we are from God. Sometimes we don't even realize that we've really drifted from him. We're so involved with the busyness of life, and suffering comes like a wake-up call. And all of a sudden we're like, whoa, look at what's going on in my life, Lord. Where are you, Lord? Am I doing okay with you? I need you. Am I close enough to you? And suffering can bring self-awareness regarding how you and the Lord are doing. And so the first thing I would tell you, when suffering hits, say, oh boy, here we go. God, how are we doing? I need to know. Am I near you? Are you near me? Are we tight or not? And so that assessment of your spiritual connection with God is the first thing. So God uses suffering to open our eyes. Secondly, to start your heart. Um, This comes out of this rend your heart. Folks, uh, passion is a good thing. Apathy is a bad thing. And sometimes when we're going through the busyness of life, we grow spiritually apathetic. We've drifted from God and we just don't care. Whatever. And that's unacceptable. We need to care. And we need to say, Lord, I see my eyes have been opened and I see how far I've drifted from you. And I can't stand this. This is unacceptable. I want to know you intimately. And so God challenges us to get your heart in the game. Rend your heart, not your garments. Rending garments. That's kind of confusing. But you should know in the ancient culture, one of the ways that they expressed remorse or passion is that they rip their shirt. They would grab it and they'd say, oh, I am disgusted with my own sin and waywardness. And they would physically demonstrate inner conviction by a destructive uh, gesture of rending their garment. You're looking like I'm strange. People still do this today. In fact, you may be able to see it this week. Tomorrow, if you're a tennis person, Wimbledon starts. The defending champion of Wimbledon is, uh, what's his name? Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic, I'm not good at my Serbian. But anyways, uh, he has a tradition of, here's a picture of him. He likes to tear his shirts when he's really passionate. Sometimes it's in a victory, sometimes it's in defeat, but he just is known for expressing that passion by ripping his shirt. Now, he can also be pragmatic and help us learn some tips on how to do this if you desire to. 
Last year at Wimbledon, he discovered they're making shirts better and better these days. <laughs> Watch this video. He, he fails. <laughs> no kidding. After pulling on his shirt for a few seconds, he just gave up. It wouldn't tear. Isn't that great? So maybe what you want to do is take a scissors and do a little cut just to get it started, you know, and so you don't embarrass yourself on national TV, you know, by doing that. So. You know, the truth is, I'm not suggesting you destroy your clothing, all right? If that would serve you well and you have some extra shirts that are ready for the rag pile, you can do it. But let's go back to the verse. Uh, the point that Joel's getting at, rend your heart. It's a heart matter more than it is a garment matter. In fact, if people are going through the motion of, look how, look how upset I am. Oh, I'm tearing my shirt. And if it's not a heart matter, well, then it's no good. The important thing is, are you disgusted? Are you saying, what's going on? I got one life. It's passing quickly. And Lord, I'm living a way that's dishonoring to you. I've drifted so far from you. This can't be. I, I sometimes pray to get emotional because I'm, you know, my wife is Greek. They have passion. I'm Norwegian. You know, we're very docile. And so I got to beg God, Lord, make me upset about my sin and my waywardness. Because if there's no kindled emotion, there'll be no life change. But where you're upset, where you're yearning for more of God and dissatisfied to the extreme with what you've got, rend your heart. That's where change can start to come. And that brings us to the third thing that suffering does. It opens eyes. It can get apathetic people in the game emotionally. And then it can move your feet. Obviously, movement, return to the Lord is in this. And suffering gets people moving back to God. Suffering gets people saying, Lord, I see it. Suddenly, really clear, I'm disgusted with how far I've drifted, and I want to come back. What do I need to do? I repent and I receive your forgiveness, but more than that, I'm going to pursue your face. I'm going to start spending time in Bible study again. I am going to start praying. I'm going to start worshiping. I'm going to start connecting with small group life so that I can be in fellowship that helps me seek you. What changes do I need to make? You just say it. I'm moving towards you. Suffering gets people moving back to God. And so can I encourage you? When suffering comes your way, say, Lord, hey, I don't like this. Do not like this. But I know it can be effective at helping me see where we're at, helping me feel remorse for my sin, and helping me get back to you. Have you noticed that sometimes the people who are closest to God are those who have suffered the most? And I pray that you and I can get so tight with God. And if suffering can be a foe towards that end, let's let it serve us that way. You know, I, uh, this week, I had, we had friends over at our house on Wednesday night. We were having a great time. Uh, our guests and my family were in the family room on couches, sitting around, just really having great conversation, enjoying one another. 
my family, that is, except for Jake. He was not playing Minecraft, but he was in another room taking a pass on being a part of the relationship there. He was playing with some toys in his cars and uh, ignoring us. And then wouldn't you know, in one important moment, all of a sudden, one of our guests, their phone started beeping. And Jake, though in another room, heard it beeping, and he looked up for the first time. And he looked out the window, and he saw that the, the, the sky was green and kind of eerie. And suddenly, the gal who had looked at her phone, she announced, there's a tornado warning. Jake heard that announcement also. And Jake, who had been so consumed with his game, suddenly he's looking up, he's seeing the green clouds, he's realizing how far he is from his father in that moment. And what he did was not even a decision. I don't think there was anything volitional in it. It was a reaction. He reacted to this realization, to danger and distance. And you know what he did? He ran to me. Jake took off running across the house like a bolt of lightning. He leapt over our coffee table in a single bound and crashed into my lap and wrapped his arms around my neck. (laughs) And, And I just, I love it. I go, tornado warning, run to the Father. Can I ask you, is that your reaction to suffering? When hardship, danger comes your way, Do you just instinctively run to the Father? I know what to do. Run to the Father. And you may say, well, it's more complicated than that. When I realize where I'm at, I realize I've got a lot of junk in my life, a lot to be ashamed of, not sure I want to go with all of my sin to the one who I've sinned against. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is forgiving. No matter how junked up with sin, your life is. Run to the Father. Every single time hardship comes your way, run to the Father. You know, I just remind you, even now, God is calling to you through his spirit, through his words that we just studied in the Bible. And simply put, God is saying, return to me. Hear the love, the pleading in his voice. God is saying, only you and I know how far you've drifted. Return to me. Please return to me. Return to me. I would encourage you, run. Run. Let's pray. God, we hear your cry with soft, pleading passion. Even in the sacred moment, we hear your cry that echoed in the days of Joel and still echoes today. Return to me. God, sometimes we've run away from you. Sometimes we've drifted away from you. Sometimes we've questioned your love when hard times come. Forgive us, God, we're fools. You are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we want to run to you. Lord, teach us take our sin, our failure, our shame, and run into the gracious, forgiving arms that you are opening wide even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.